0: Good morning, brothers and sisters, people of God. It's such a joy to be gathered together again on the Lord's Day with you all. Such a privilege to sing such words and to stand on every promise of God's Word. We desperately need God's Word, and being here on the Lord's Day to receive His Word is a way that we express to the Lord that we really do believe it's true that his word is truth and that we need it as our food. It nourishes us spiritually. It strengthens us for the fight, the fight against the evil one. It gives us what we need. It makes us equipped for every good work. Complete, <clears throat> nourished, well watered. That is what we need and that is why we come. One of the reasons we come to gather as God's people on the Lord's day is to sit under his word and to drink So it's a blessing to be together again for that, and I want to thank Trey for preaching God's word to us last week, for giving us another rich explanation of Paul's letter to the Philippians, that power-packed epistle, Uh, not very long, but just full of richness, and I'm grateful to him as our brother, bringing so much of that out to us from uh, that epistle Today we return to the second book of the Bible, to the book of Exodus. This is where we've been as a church for quite some time, and you'll see these posters. You really can't miss it when you walk in here, so uh, I'd be a little surprised if you missed those, Uh, but if you're visiting with us today, there they are. Uh, We are in the book of Exodus, uh, and it has been uh, such a delight from a preaching standpoint to go through this book. I felt the same way when I went through Genesis, when I go through any book of the Bible, but it has been It's just really enriching for me personally to walk through these first two books of the Bible, which set up so many of the themes. You could even say really all of the themes of Scripture set up in these first two books of the Bible, Genesis and Exodus. And it may seem like we're quite a ways from being at the end of Exodus, but we're really not. Uh, The reason I say that is because what we will get when we get to chapter 35 is uh, really a repeat of what we've covered when God told Moses how the tabernacle is to be built. So we're not going to go through all of that in detail. When we get to chapter 35 up through the end of chapter 39, uh, what you really get there is a repeat of the instructions that were given to Moses. However, you do get some slight differences in order and some other emphases. So we will spend time there but we're not going to be going through that at the pace that we went through uh, the instructions. It's a repeat of that. So we really are, because of that, we really are quite near the end of the book of Exodus. And today we're in chapter 33. So if you would turn there in your Bibles with me, Exodus 33, verses 1 to 17. Don't get me wrong, we're not going to be done next week or anything like that, but Uh, We are nearing the end. We are on the back stretch. We see the finish line up ahead. A few weeks ago, going into Christmas, we finished the story of the golden calf in chapter 32. Probably something that uh, all of us have, have some familiarity with, this story, this awful story in chapter 32 of the Israelites building constructing a golden calf and worshiping it as their god or their gods and as I said before idolatry is murky and so I don't think there's much need in trying to determine precisely how the people view the golden calf and uh, the relationship of the golden calf to Yahweh And is it uh, one God that they've replaced Yahweh with or multiple gods? It's murky, and I think the reason for that is because there's such a high level of irrationality involved in idolatry. And so it is natural that it would be messy and not clear-cut. So we got that description of the golden calf incident in chapter 32. And these weren't the sermon titles, but I broke that up into three parts. You really really can see the movement between these three parts. You have the construction of the idol itself, and then the conversation between Yahweh and Moses on the mountain about the object, about what's gone on down at the bottom of the mountain. And then you have, after the conversation, you have confrontation. The confrontation that ensues as Moses comes down the mountain and engages with the people. And as the Lord himself, both through Moses and the Levites, but also later as the Lord confronts the sin of the people. And we ended that section with the plague that God sent on the people. And we find that in verse 35. So if you want to look there. That's where chapter 32 ended, and that's where we ended in Exodus a few weeks ago. So, verse 35 says, Then the Lord sent a plague on the people because they made the calf the one that Aaron made. And today, as we come into chapter 33, we begin looking at the aftermath of the golden calf, the aftermath that leads towards a gracious renewal of the covenant and once again just highlighting the infinite grace of God that even after the golden calf incident we and we've seen already the grace of God but when we realize as we come into chapter 33 that we are leaning into the covenant being renewed and the tabernacle being built we realize the magnitude of God's grace God will be merciful with the people The two tablets will be remade. Remember, Moses broke those tablets as a symbol of what the people had already done in breaking covenant with God, in cheating on God, as it were, committing adultery, spiritual adultery, as they went after false gods and abandoned their husband, the Lord. So the two tablets will be remade. They will be re-inscribed by the Lord. The tabernacle will be built. And God's glory will fill the tabernacle at the very end of the book. So we see that over here. Exodus 40, verses 34 to 38. That's where Exodus ends. And it is the glory of God filling the tabernacle. So all of that will happen. But. At this stage in the narrative, there is a big question mark around all of these things. As we we move our way through the narrative, we know where it's going. But as we're following the, the logic of the narrative, as we're following the progression, at this point, there is a big question mark. What now? The nation has collectively rebelled against Yahweh, the one true and living God, their personal deliverer, their personal covenant-making, covenant-keeping God. They have rebelled against the Lord, and it is only through Moses' intercession that God has not wiped them out. Remember that Uh, God does not say, I'm going to punish the people, and Moses says, oh no, Lord, don't punish the people God says I'm going to obliterate the people I'm going to annihilate the people they're going to be gone and Moses says no Lord don't do that God hears Moses' intercession and he graciously relents from his anger so what is next for Israel Israel How will they move forward after such an awful act of infidelity towards the Lord? Remember, chapter 32, verse 4. If you have any doubt about the gravity of their sin, any doubt about how grievous it was to the Lord and how deserving of his wrath, just as we recognize our own sin, we see in verse 4 of chapter 32, and he, speaking of Aaron, received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf and they said, this is what they said once they had requested gods, they had given their earrings to Aaron to make the calf. This is what they said. These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. They ascribed all the saving works that were Yahweh's works. They described all those, they they ascribed all those saving works, all that love, all that power, all of that holiness, glory, and majesty. They ascribed it to a piece of metal, to the golden calf. The title, for the sermon this morning, is give us your presence. Give us your presence. This is Moses' plea, which we're going to see today. This is Moses' appeal and plea to God. And it is the great theme of this section. And it'll bleed into the next section, which is show me your glory. Uh, Moses is engaging with God. And at this stage, he says to God, give us your presence. Presence. And his next request of the Lord is, show me your glory. And so that's where we'll be headed next. But for now, give us your presence. And it is probably the thing we most take for granted as Christians. And think about the Christian life as we're moving through our days and our weeks, our months, our years. We're living out this life that God has called us to This is the thing we most take for granted. And that is that we have God's presence always. How profound is that? How neglected is that truth? How neglected is that experiential reality? That we have God's presence always. We don't just have God's presence with us when Things are going well when we follow the reading plan, which we should follow the reading plan. We should do the things, the disciplines that God calls us to. We ought to discipline ourselves. We ought to do the things that help us grow and those means of grace that God has provided. But how comforting is it for us to know that merely by virtue of the fact that we are Christian? We always have God's presence. He never leaves us. He never forsakes us. Not when we neglect the things, even when we neglect the things that he has given us to grow. He's always there to be called upon. He's always there to be prayed to. And it is one of Satan's great works, to use Paul's language, one of Satan's great schemes to convince us that God is far off. That God is not there. He's not intimate. He's not with me. He is, in fact, in me. He is always with us. Pray into that. Live like that this year. That God is with us. He is come. He is come, as the first line of joy to the world says. He is come. He has come. He is in Christ, incarnate in the world. And he is in us by his regenerating, sanctifying, indwelling Holy Spirit. We are the tabernacle of God. The temple of the living God, what a comfort for us, and let me just say to you this morning, if you're far off from God, you feel far off, whatever that means for you, whatever it means to feel far off from God, that God is not far from you, if you are a Christian, if you've embraced the incarnate word of God, Christ, and you've been filled with the Holy Spirit, God is not far, He is there, minute by minute, always with you. If you would stand with me as we read God's word together. We're going to read Exodus 33, 1 to 17. This is the word of God. The Lord said to Moses, depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt, to the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying to your offspring, I will give it. I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you, Therefore, the people of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Horeb onward. This appears to be a permanent thing. This is a shift. Verse 7. Now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, far off from the camp, and he called it the tent of meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. Whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people would rise up and each would stand at his tent door, And watch Moses until he had gone into the tent. When Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent. And the Lord would speak with Moses. And when all the people saw the pillar of the cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise up and worship each at his tent door. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. When Moses turned again into the camp, his assistant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. Verse 12, (coughs) Moses said to the Lord, so what we've just read is like a parenthesis. Now we're back, back on track here. Moses said to the Lord, see, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. And he said, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. And he said to him, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us? So that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth. Verse 17 And the Lord said to Moses, This very thing that you have spoken, I will do, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. You can go ahead and be seated. And you'll notice there in verse 18, we get this next part. Moses said, please show me your glory. And that opens up a new section that we will, it's connected obviously, but it opens up a new portion that we'll begin to look at next week. So let's pray. Let's go to the Lord, ask for his help, ask that he would buckle us in and that he would help our minds to cling to his word, that he would remove distractions That he would help us to be vigilant and attentive and that he would speak into our hearts, each of us, where we are in our lives. That's the the miracle of uh, one of the miracles of, of preaching and reading God's word is that God takes the word and he works in all kinds of different ways in the hearts of his people. He uses it to sanctify us. So let's pray into that this morning. Father, we're grateful For your grace, we're grateful that you bring us here in your providence and you give us your truth. God, we pray that our hearts would be attentive, that we would not neglect this means of grace, that we would not uh, be slothy uh, in our approach to your word this morning, that we would be fervent in spirit, that we would be zealous for you. And God, where that is not the case, that we would confess that to you and that we would seek you for that, Lord, as we know you are always present with us. You're never far off, God. You are in us by your Spirit. And so we pray this morning collectively, corporately, that you would help us and feed us by means of your Word. Give us understanding with our minds. Give us a will to obey and give us affections that delight in Jesus Christ. God, we love you and thank you for loving us. In Jesus' name, amen. This section can be divided into two parts. So chapter 33, 1 to 17 comes to us really in two parts. And these are our two sermon points. If you're taking notes, you want to write these down. So first, the negative news, and we get that in verses 1 to 6. And then second, the intimate intercession, and we get that in verses 7 to 17. And you'll see the way that whole chunk fits together with those two parts. So the negative news and the intimate intercession intercession. So as we do, let's look at the first section, the negative news, verses 1 to 6. We're going to read those verses again. The Lord said to Moses, depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt, to the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying to your offspring, I will give it. I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, The Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey. But I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way. For you are a stiff-necked people. When the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned. And no one put on his ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, Say to the people of Israel, you are a stiff-necked people. If for a single moment... I should go up among you I would consume you so now take off your ornaments that I may know what to do with you therefore the people of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from mount Horeb onward here we begin with a reiteration of what God has already told Moses at the end of chapter 32 so if you look back At the end of chapter 32, you'll see this in verse 34. Verse 34 says, But now go, this is Yahweh speaking to Moses, But now go, lead the people to the place about which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. As this message begins, it appears to be nothing but good or positive news. Now, you're reading along and you're going, yes, yes. Yes, this is great. This is good. Moses is commanded to take the people into the promised land. The promised land still lies ahead for the people. God will keep his promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Israel will enter and inhabit the land of Canaan which is described here in verse 3 as a land flowing with milk and honey. This This is going to be a rich and prosperous land. They've been slaves in Egypt. Then they've been in the wilderness. But God has waiting for them a land flowing with milk and honey. A rich and prosperous land. This description goes back to the burning bush. It goes all the way back to what the Lord said to Moses at the burning bush. Remember when he appeared to him and Moses took off his sandals. God commanded him to take off his sandals because he was standing on holy ground. And God calls Moses at that point to go to Egypt and deliver the people. And part of what God tells Moses, we read in verse 8 of chapter 3, I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land a land flowing with milk and honey and by the way that was always god's intention god did not save his people just to sort of save them and then leave them god saved them he brought them out of slavery in order to bring them into a kind of paradise now not paradise Still in a fallen world, they would be fallen, their enemies would be fallen, the ground is cursed, but it's, it's, like the, the, it's like a paradise, it's like Eden. God had saved them, He had brought them out of slavery to bring them into a little Eden-like place. And this reminds us of what God has done for us. He didn't just save us so that we would just live through this life in some kind of way. He saved us to bring us to paradise. He saved us to bring us to glory. This is the reason that Christians have joy. Throughout the New Testament, joy is connected to hope. And hope is focused on the coming of Jesus the second time. Jesus Christ will come. We are awaiting people. We are waiting for His return when He will make all things new and He will glorify us and we will be together with Him in a glorified state In a renewed, restored world forever. The promised land of Canaan is a picture of that eternal, ultimate reality. We will be saved from sin, saved to something, and that is presence of God in glory to Eden. And that's what we find here. God saved his people in order to bring them into this land. And God will ensure that this happens by means of an angel who will go before them. By means of this angel, God will drive out the various Canaanite peoples so that his people can have the land. The land that God swore to give to the offspring of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So far, so good, right? So far, so good. This is seemingly great news. So why... Have I entitled this the negative news? You could entitle it the terrible news, the disastrous news. Well, there's a massive problem. And it's not a little problem. It causes the whole thing to crumble. It's a massive problem. And it comes at the end of verse 3. Look there. At the end of verse 3. But. So all that he said, all that good news, sounds great, God. Thumbs are up. But I will not go up among you. You'll have the land, but not me. You'll be present in the land, but you won't be present with me. I won't be present with you. This is a massive problem. And he goes on to say, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. And in verse 5, we get this repeated. This is what Moses is to say to the people. You are a stiff-necked people. If for a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. So here, God tells the people that he will not go with them. They will not have his presence. The angel... And this is important to see this distinction. The angel mentioned is a mere created being whom God says he will send with them or before them. This will be different from what was described back in Exodus chapter 23, verses 20 to 21. So if you go back to Exodus 23, you don't have to flip there, I'll read it to you. But Exodus 23, verses 20 to 21, in that portion, God says this, behold, I send an angel before you to guard you on the way. So far, it sounds very similar to what we read in, verse, in chapter 33. But then it goes on to say this, And to bring you to the place that I have prepared. Pay careful attention to him and obey his voice. Do not rebel against him, for he will not pardon your transgression. So he has pardoning power. And then this last part is significant. For my name is in him. This angel that we read about in, verse, in chapter 23, this angel, this messenger, in Hebrew it means messenger, has God's name in him and is like what is described in Isaiah 63 verse 9. The angel of his presence who saved Israel. The angel of God's presence, the messenger of his presence, the one who was at the burning bush. This is the angel of the Lord. This is God himself with his people. So in chapter 23, God tells the people, I'm going to send myself, I'm going to send my messenger, the angel of the Lord, the one in whom is my name. I'm going to send the angel of my presence with you as you go into the land. So that is what they have heard up to this point. That, is, that has been the message. But now they are told that God will send an angel without his presence. And that's a category they haven't had. Let me make that clear. That's a category they have not had. They, they've heard this word angel, but it's always been connected with God's presence. So the messenger of God's presence, one with God, the second person of the Trinity, the angel of the Lord. But now they are told that these two things can actually be broken apart, that this word angel can be applied to a being where God is absent. And here we are meant to understand that God is telling them that he will send a created being, an angelic being, not himself but an angelic being to take care of business for his people. A creature who will ensure that God's will is carried out, but who will not be God himself. The people are stiff-necked, stubborn, obstinate, unwilling to yield to the Lord. Remember, when we talked about this, this is like a... Cattle, some cattle, a livestock, an animal on a farm that will not take the yoke. It stretches out its neck. It refuses to take the yoke. Stiff-necked, unyielding, unwilling to submit. The people are described by the Lord in these terms. And God says that if He goes with them, they will be consumed by His wrath. Added to this very bad news is a command. And you read that command in verse 5. So now, take off your ornaments that I may know what to do with you. So what's going on here? God tells them he's not going with them. He tells them his assessment of them that they are a stiff-necked people that would be utterly consumed by his wrath if he were to go with them. And then he gives them this command to take off their ornaments. This taking off of the ornaments probably has a few functions. So let me just list these for you, go through these quickly. So the first thing that I think is in view here is it connects the experience of the Israelites back to the patriarchs. There is a very similar point in God's story, in redemptive history, where you see this happening in the household of Jacob. So let me read this to you. Genesis 35 verse 4. So he's just come out of Shechem where his sons have uh, killed all the men because uh, their daughter uh, or their sister was raped. Simeon and Levi, they kill all the men and they leave and God puts a terror over the nations so that the household of Jacob is able to move. Now remember, Jacob is now coming back to Bethel. He started in Bethel when he left his Family's household, he was going to his relatives, that's where he would get his wives. He is going to his relatives. He, God appears to him with the ladder going up to heaven. And God tells him that he will bring him back to this place. Well, then many years transpire, and here's Jacob coming back to Bethel, to that very place where he laid his head and saw that vision of the Lord and the angels ascending and descending on the ladder. And here is Jacob entering back into the land with this entourage of people, with this massive household and these offspring. And we read this in chapter 35, verse 4. So they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods that they had and the rings that were in their ears. Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree that was near Shechem. This is interesting, and I think it's hopeful for the people because what it does is it reminds the people, oh yeah, I remember that story about our father Jacob, and he came out and he was coming back to the land, he was coming into Canaan, and they turned away from their foreign gods, and to symbolize that, they took off their jewelry. Why is it hopeful? It's hopeful because of where he went next. He went to the promised place. And I think this alone communicates to the people that there's, there's hope ahead, that God is still going to work out his redemptive purposes for them just as he did with Jacob. So it connects back to the patriarchs. It symbolizes mourning over sin. It is an act of contrition. It's an act of renunciation, an act of repentance. It purges Israel of evil religious amulets. You think about what, where, what, where did this jewelry come from? All of these different pieces of ornaments, these pieces of jewelry, where did they come from? They came off of the Egyptians. The Egyptians were some of the most religious people in the history of the world. Everything they had was about their religion. And so there would have been all kinds of religious imagery on these ornaments, on these pieces of jewelry. Perhaps it was even an image of a calf on one of these pieces of jewelry. That was used as the basis for what was made with those earrings. So it purges Israel of these religious amulets. And it serves to undo the golden calf incident. How was the golden calf made? By earrings. The last time they took off their jewelry, it was for idolatry. Now it will be for mourning over that very sin. So there's a lot going on here as we think about these ornaments, but God commands them to do this, and how do the people respond? Look at verses 4 and 6. When the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned, and no one put on his ornaments. Verse 6, therefore the people of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Horeb onward. So this is is a hopeful moment in Israel's history. They do not reject God's word. They do what God says. They obey the Lord. So we have obedience. We have readiness to listen to the Lord. And we have this stripping away. Let me say this to all of us as we think about the Christian life. And this is really fitting as we think about moving into the new year. There is always the need for a stripping away. We cannot come to the Lord and ask him for renewal and ask him for a fresh start, ask him to to work in our lives, to restore our marriage, to restore our parenting, to, to help us in how we carry out the spiritual disciplines of life to help us engage with other people, be wiser with our money, whatever the case might be. This will always, for us, involve a stripping away. It is often the case that we come to God and we ask things from God, we seek God with no willingness to strip away. Well, there's a word for that. Two words, actually. stiff. Necked. That's exactly what was going on here with the Israelite To come to God and to seek anything from God with no willingness to strip away. I I quite like my life. I quite like my pleasures. I quite like my comforts, my routines. All that I have in my little bubble of self must stay. But Lord, this is what I want you to do for me. That's not how... Life works. That's not how relating to God works. We come to God. We pour out our hearts to God. We seek His grace. We seek His help. But it always involves purging and stripping away those things which have got us into the mess we're in in the first place. Those things that sustain us in the mess we're in. That we want God to just drop a new life right in our lap. We've built that life. We've built that castle of sand. We have to strip away. And that is the image that we get here with the Israelites. There is a stripping that takes place as they move away from the idolatry of chapter 32. So we see the negative news. Now we come to the intimate intercession. And for that, look with me at verses 7 to 17. Now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, far off from the camp, and he called it the tent of meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. each at his tent door. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. When Moses turned again into the camp, his assistant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. By the way, it's interesting. He prays that God would do something in order that Moses would know the Lord better and find more grace. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. And he said, My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. And he said to him, If your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, This very thing that you have spoken I will do, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name so the people have heard very bad news well what's next what's next now what will God do with them they have stripped themselves of jewelry they have symbolized their repentance they have obeyed the Lord they have done what he said but they have been told that God will not go with them what now the answer, once again, is the mediator. You've got to love that about Exodus. The answer, repeatedly, is the mediator. The mediator, the mediator, the mediator. You've, seen, you've heard me say that many times. We talked about it with the tabernacle. We talked about it in the wilderness lead up to Mount Sinai. We've talked about it quite a bit recently with the golden calf. It keeps appearing, the mediator. God will reunite himself with his people through the mediator, through one man, Moses. And this section can be divided into two parts. So verses 7 through 11 give the background. They set up the intimate relationship that Moses had with God. And then verses 12 to 17 describe the intercession. So you get the background to the intercession, which comes in verses 12 to 17. How does Israel move from being denied God's presence to being given his presence? And the answer, as we've seen before, is the intercession of Moses. The intercessory prayer, we could say, although it's not really prayer. He's speaking to him, the intercession of Moses. We're speaking to him in prayer as well, but he's speaking to him as he has appeared before Moses. So let's look at each of these. First, the background. The background. Now, at this point in the narrative, we are told that there has been a functioning tent. This is a new element. This is not something that we've had before, that there is a functioning tent. Not the tabernacle tent that will be set up later, but a tent where Moses meets with God. This is a private meeting tent. This is a one-man tent. We don't know how big it was, but it was just for Moses to meet with Yahweh. We've seen him meet with God on the mountain. But now we are told about this tent of meeting. And that kind of fills in some gaps as well. Because this is something, as the text presents it, that has been going on for a while. This helps us to understand, okay, well, when did Moses talk to God? And how did all that dialogue happen? We've been told the moments when he goes up on the mountain and receives word from the Lord. He comes back down the mountain. But there's other dialogues that are happening. Well, there's this tent. There is this tent of meeting. Moses would go out to it and the people would stand at the front of their tents to watch him as he enters. And that image is incredible to me when you think about all these tents and all these people. And they would see, he's, he's going out to the tent. He's going to the tent. And they would maybe call out to their friends in the tent next door, their neighbor. Everyone needed to recognize, Moses is headed to the tent. And everyone would stand at the entrance of their tents. I can imagine fathers sort of scurrying their, their kids, getting all the kids up, getting, getting their wives, come to the, to the front of the Moses is going out. It's a big deal. And when he enters, God's presence in the cloud would come down and stand outside the tent to talk with Moses. That glory cloud would come down for this one man, At this one location, when this happened, the people would bow in worship out of reverence for God. If you could take a picture of that, how incredible. Here's Moses, he's in the tent, and this glory cloud there at the front of the tent, at the entrance of the tent. And all the people, as far as the eye can see, at the doorway of their tents, bowed in worship of God. The Lord. If you want a glorious picture, just snap that one right now in your mind. Let that one sit and settle for years to come. Notice that the tent is far off and private. Only Moses is there, and it is outside the camp. However, it also served, we are told, as a place where people could approach to present their cases before God. And this probably goes back to uh, legal matters. When you think about the people having disputes and needing to bring those difficult disputes since the time of Jethro coming. Those difficult disputes to Moses and and maybe even needing to present themselves before Moses as he is with the Lord. It served as a place for people to approach. Now, you don't... You're not imagining that this is happening very often. There's not a long line coming off of this tent where people are just waiting. This is a, this is an incredibly holy, set-apart thing. But it can be approached. It can be approached. When Moses left the tent, Joshua... Moses' assistant stayed there to guard it. We're not told specifically that he stayed there to guard it, but that is the implication. We've already seen Joshua lead the people in battle. We know that Joshua is going to be the one responsible for bringing the people into the promised land. That Moses is going to hand the, the baton off to Joshua. Here Joshua makes sure that this place remains holy, sacred, set off from common Use. This is not a place to come and hang out. This is not a place to come and just chat. This is a holy place. But the reason that all of this is described is found at the beginning of verse 11. That's the reason we even get these verses. Verse 11, thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. Now it's interesting here because the text could have just said that. We could have just been told that right before we get into verse 12. Yeah, God spoke intimately with Moses face to face as with a friend. But that's not enough. This has to be made clear. This has to be made vivid. And so we get verses 7 through 11 to make vivid what precisely is in view when it says that God speaks to Moses face to face and that there is this level of intimacy with the mediator. That's why this tent is described at this point. It sets up what is about to happen. Moses is about to enter that tent and intercede for Israel. So that leads us to the intercession. We see the background in verses 7 through 11. And now we see the intercession. We're on this point, the intimate intercession. We've seen the intimate part. Now we look at the intercession part. It is out of this intimate relationship that Moses speaks to God on behalf of Israel. And what I want to do here is to go ahead and cut to the chase. Moses has one big request that he makes to Yahweh. One big request that he makes to the Lord. And here it is, it's our sermon title, Give Us Your Presence. That's what this entire section is about. God says, I'm not giving you my presence. And Moses, out of his intimacy with the Lord, says, oh, but do. Give us your presence. Who is this angel you are sending with us, Lord? If it is not the angel of your presence who bears your name. Moses is saying, hold on a second. You've talked angel. You've talked yourself. When you've talked about an angel, it has always been your presence in view. Was it not the angel of the Lord who appeared to him in the burning bush? And was it not Yahweh who spoke to him as the angel of the Lord? So who is this mere angel that you are sending with me as I carry out this work? If it is not the angel who bears your name, what is your plan? Or as he puts it in verse 13, please show me now your ways. God, I don't understand. I'm bewildered. I'm confused. What are you doing? Show me your ways. Show me your plan. Moses appeals to the favor he enjoys with God. If God has given his favor to Moses, then how will he not give also his presence? How can God give his grace Without his presence. Aren't those two things. Integrally related. Is it not. To have grace. Is having grace not to have God. Is having grace. Not to have. God's presence. But Moses. We need to see. Is not content. To have God's presence. Personally. Remember. He is a covenant mediator. He's not just saying, but God, I want to have this personal relationship with you, just me and you. I don't really care about anybody else. It's just you and me, God. That's not what Moses is doing. We've seen that already as he asked the Lord to blot his name out of the book if he will not forgive his people. Moses is functioning as the covenant mediator. He is the leader of his people. As the people go, so goes Moses in Moses's mind. He calls on God to give his presence to Israel as a whole. Verse 13, consider too that this nation is your people. Verses 15 to 16, and he said to him, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. Just leave us. Just, just leave us right here. We, we can't take another step without you, God. We can't take another step without your presence. See, it's when we are in self-sufficiency, when we take lots of steps and we have all kinds of capabilities without God. That's when we fall. That's when we crash and burn. This is the attitude of Moses. We can't go anywhere without you. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us So that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth. Notice this about Moses' plea. Notice this about Moses' intercession. He is always concerned for God's glory. That's always the case. Moses isn't merely saying, But how will I fare, O God? How will I fare? How will the people fare? That's not the end of our existence, is how we'll fare. In the end, I tell you how we'll fare, we will be rotting in the earth. That's how it's going to end in this life. We're all coming to that point of death. That's how it's ultimately going to fare. At some point, we're going to fall over and be done in this life. We're consumed with our comfort and our health and our faring well. Moses is consumed with the glory of the Lord. God's glory. How shall it be known? God wants Moses to be, Moses wants God to be known well. He wants God's glory to shine. He wants God's character to be on display And his concern, the burden of his heart, is that if this happens this way, God's glory, his character, will not shine forth. Is that what we think about when we get sick? Is that what we think about when we lose a job? Is that what we think about when times are hard? God's glory, God's glory. Or is it just about faring well? Sailing across life in the best ship we can find. With the best sails we have, the firmest footing for our feet, and the best reserves for our bellies underneath. Just just this life. That is to live as a pagan, that is to live as a Canaanite, as an Egyptian, as a Roman. Just as Jesus says in Matthew 6, you worry about all these things. What's he talking about? He's talking about food and drink and clothing. And he says, do not the Gentiles seek after all these things? That's exactly what a, a pagan does. They live for food and drink and clothing and all the rest. Not so the one who knows Yahweh. Not so the one who knows the Lord. Consumed with his blood. Glory. So what is God's response? Verse 14, And he said, My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. Verse 17, And the Lord said to Moses, This very thing that you have spoken, I will do. For you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Once again, all of Moses' verbiage, all of Moses' praying, and the Lord says, Okay. That's what I'll do. That is what I'll do. And do you know what that's meant to tell us? Not that God is flippant or cavalier. It's meant to tell us that was always God's intention. His intention was never to blot out his people. His intention was never to remove his presence from them. His intention was always to relate to them, listen to this, in their sinfulness by means of a mediator. So that he would spare them and grace them and be present with them by means of a mediator. This was always God's will. And we see here an emphasis on God's glory. And we see here an emphasis on God's grace. God's grace. He really does forgive sin. Do you believe that? Do you really believe that? He really does forgive your sins. He actually does that through Jesus Christ. He he pardons us. He removes our sins as far as the east is from the west. He blots them out. He throws them away because he put them on Christ. They've been dealt with. Another thing we need to see here is that God's presence is the one great indispensable. We need God, not what He gives. And maybe the problem spiritually for you this morning is that your focus is on what God gives. It's the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. It's all about what God gives. It's all about God putting food on my plate, whatever that food might be. And then I'll praise Him. Isn't that the way we use the word blessed in our culture? Almost always it has to do with temporal goods. Almost always it has to do with the things we can touch, the tangibles of life. Those are dispensable. There is one great indispensable, and that is the presence of the living God. That cannot be done without. We can go without all these little trinkets, and we'll be just fine, but we can never go without the Lord. Psalm 27, 8-9, to you have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger. O you who have been my help, cast me not off. Forsake me not, O God of my salvation. We need the Lord. So let me, let me say this to you in your Bible reading this year. Seek to know God. Seek to know God. Not to read chapters. That's fine. We got to read chapters to know the Lord because that's his word. But don't don't seek to do that. That's not the end. The end game is communion with God. So if your reading time is too crunched, enlarge that thing. If you got too much on your plate, read the Bible in two years, in three years. Better to read the Bible in 10 years and to spend time with God while you're reading it than to get through it every six months, every 90 days, whatever. Commune with God, know God, walk with God, enjoy His presence, not the satisfaction of having done that thing which we resolve to do. That's a powerful force. And it can become the end rather than God himself. The final thing I want to point us all to, so lovely, is that there is a mediator in whom God is well pleased. Notice here that all this intercession and all the results of it are based upon God being pleased with Moses. That's the way it's presented in this text. You say, well, hold on a second, Moses was a sinner too. Of course, that's not the point. The point is that in this way, Moses points to Jesus Christ. God was pleased with Moses alone. And it is because of his favor towards Moses and his being pleased with Moses that he rescued and saved the entire people. And he gave them his presence. Is this not what we find in Matthew 3, verse 17? As Jesus comes up from the baptism, and behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Ephesians 5, verse 2, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So why will we be in heaven? Because God's well pleased with Jesus. That's the only reason. That's the answer to the question. You're not going to be in heaven because you did this or that. You're not going to be in heaven because your works were were better than they could have been. Because they outweighed your bad deeds. If that's how you're thinking, you're not a believer. You're not a Christian. A Christian is someone who's come to realize that there is an end to myself. There's an end to my works. They could never please God. They could never amount to righteousness. I need the righteousness of another. And that righteous one is Jesus Christ. He is the fullness of Moses. Moses is a little flicker who points to this Christ in whom the Father is well pleased. And every sinner in this Christ is also well pleasing to God. Adopted by God as our Heavenly Father and given glory with Christ forever because of The pleasing aroma of Christ's loving sacrifice on the cross. That's the only way to heaven. Religion won't get you there. Even some sort of fabricated personal relationship with Jesus, as you understand him, will not get you there. The only way to get to heaven is through this one who is the way, the truth, and the life. Who died for sinners. We must trust in what he did and accomplished alone to save us. And then we too, through Christ, will be pleasing to the Father. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for the scriptures. We thank you for this set of verses in Exodus 33 and how they feed us and teach us. How they convict us and show us who you are and what your ways are. Lord, how glorious it is to see all the ways that Moses points to Jesus. How glorious it is to see how Aaron points to Jesus. Lord, you use these sinful, imperfect types to point to the sinless, imperfect mediator. We thank you for our intercessor. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you that he interceded for us when he died on the cross for our sins and that he intercedes for us continually at your right hand and that one day he will come back for us and we will forever be with him, with you, Father, in eternal glory. God, would this give us joy? Not a new thing. Not a new prospect for the year. Not a new trinket. uh, Not a new uh, financial prospect or Uh, whatever, Lord, would we have joy because of the hope that we have in Jesus Christ and that through him we are pleasing to you, we know you, and we have your presence. Lord, would that be what animates us this year? Would that be what motivates everything we do? In Jesus' name,